Um, I would find some kind of theory or some kind of information that would make me believe in an afterlife. And I've got too much of a materialist, rationalist brain. So there'll be a moment of something that I'll think, yes. And then, and then you know, my, the little editing voice comes in and goes, no, you know, you're being an idiot. You just want it to happen. And, and again, I wish I came from a culture that simply believed that you know, our ancestors or the spirits are with us and they're there and, and we can attend to them and they can care for us and we can care for them. I wished I believed and, and I wanna believe and I'm working at it, but I'm not sure I'll ever get there because of that editing voice. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of grief. These stories are shared with the wish that you, the listener, may find some comfort, hope and solidarity, and maybe also the realisation that you're not alone in your grief. Each time you listen, please do support the podcast by donating on the website shapesofgrief.com or by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests for showing up in this particular way. It truly is a gift. Welcome back to Shapes of Grief. And for those of you who listened to the last episode, you'll know that Sandy and I were planning a part two. So here we are two days later, we've met on Zoom again. Um, And I was really keen to meet with Sandy again because we, you know, although we did have a good 50 minutes together for the last episode, it felt just way too short. And I felt that I hadn't mined Sandy enough for all the wisdom that she has. And um, so she's kindly offered to, to share more of that wisdom again with us today. Um, Sandy, welcome back. Thank you. I hope that there's some wisdom on tap for tonight. I can never quite guarantee. Yeah, and it's, you know, we never know where these conversations are going to go. They're unscripted, they're unprepared. But what I love about that is the authenticity that comes from that. Um, and often people will say to me, should I prepare something? Should I read something? And I say, please don't, please don't. Because I think when we're just talking authentically and from the heart, there is such an amount of wisdom there that we don't realize we have sometimes. Um, but it's just invaluable. I know this from listening to people's stories. It's invaluable for people coming along behind you who are facing into this experience to just hear from other people who've had a similar experience, but are a little further along in processing their grief or integrating their grief. So something I thought we could start with today, Sandy, because of your background as an artist, is the expression of grief. You know, you mentioned in the last episode how important it was for you when you felt yourself dissociating or just leaving your body that you would come and write and that that would bring you back. And I think this is something I've said many times, grief needs expression or sweating. It needs to be moved or expressed in some way. Would you speak to that for us, please, Sandy? Sure, and I've that. term sweating I hadn't used it before but I'm going to adopt it now (laughs) that's a good one um yeah interestingly the the process early grief for me is sort of um it it did not 
feel like it wanted to be manifested in visual arts, which is what I normally work in. And it's taken me a full two years to get to the point where, where I'm ready to work. Um, and, and in fact, in, just in January, rented studio space, and I'm about to embark on a project that has been percolating. And I mean, that is my artistic process always has been. I'm not the kind of artist that goes into the studio every day and plods through. I work from an inspired place and, and it requires a lot of gathering and a lot of synthesis before I can actually work. So, so I have been gathering. I've been gathering, you know, since the moment John died. I was even gathering before because I had planned a, a project that was it was uh, loosely what I call uh, the mapping project, but it was mapping our relationship. And, and that started with um, an activity that we used to do together, which was hiking. He was an avid outdoors person and an avid sports person, as I mentioned the last time. I'm not. <laughs> and, and, um, and I'm, I, you know, I, I've never thought of myself as an outdoorsy type, but he lived in an exquisite part of the world. And it was a place that I'd never spent any time in before, which is Western North Carolina. Um, it looks very much like Ireland, it looks very much like Scotland. There's wild rhododendrons everywhere, lots of water, lots of green. And, and um, it's just beautiful. And and he shared his love of the place and of hiking with me in such a way that it just made it welcoming. And, and I became quite avid a hiker and quite avid about that, the outdoor space there. I'm, I'm, I, I miss it. I long for it even now. And um, so I was, every time we would go on a hike, I don't even know exactly why I did it, but I, but I would photograph our feet you know, at the start of the trail, and it would just be a downward shot of both of our feet. And I, so every hike we went on, I had, a, I had that photograph. And I planned to sort of map the hikes and use those photos and use some bits and pieces that I picked up and along the way and, and you know, do some writing into it as well. So, so you know, description here and there. Um, and then when he died, um, not long after, that sort of shifted into the idea of mapping love and loss. And that is actually the project that I will be working on. So it'll be both our story and also our story post his death. And, and so it's, it's, you know, it's both things. Um, but like I said, I was only, only feeling ready to actually um, engage in the actual work of it um, quite recently. So so that's exciting. And that's a piece of the healing, I think. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, how important do you think it is to share your story or to have your story heard or witnessed? Or, or is it just for you, for your process to integrate your grief, to integrate your story, to find your narrative in this way? Or is it important for you, for other people to bear witness to your experience of grief, of love and grief? Um, and, and my answer to your question was that it's a bit of both. It became very important for me to tell our story. And I think partially because we were together for such a short amount of time as a couple that we never, in our own eyes, we became cemented as John and Sandy, but not, it was not reflected in the wider world. And, and so that was a piece 
um, a piece of my grief that I found uh, that I really struggled a lot with and, str and struggle with to this day um, to some degree because I'm not around people who knew us. Um, he never got to come to Australia. We were planning to get to be married in September in 2019 of October. In October, we were going to come to Fremantle where I would get to share him with all of my friends and he would get to reconnect with my son who he knew when my son was young and, and, and to establish then all of those relationships. So he's known as an abstract here. Um, and you know, my good friends will say to me, we know what he was to you. We could see it on your face in the photographs, you know, like so from a distance they could tell, but they never got to know him and they never got to have their one-on-one -on -one relationships with this man. And so, and so my grief is a little bit in a vacuum. Um, and I think for me, it's a way to, to share it and make it manifest and make it real. And initially some of that had to do with an all, my almost, um, I don't wanna say desperate exactly, but it was this drive, um, to concretize us, you know, to make us into this something that nobody could deny. And, and, and my initial thoughts were to write a book, a memoir of it. And I did do some pieces towards that end, but, but I also know that I, and, and it may become a memoir at some point um, as well, but, but I also know that I, I embody what I know. I embody what I learned by making. And so the physical act of making combined with sort of the, the, the mulling that I do and the writing that I do um, brings me to knowledges that I don't get without the other. So it sort of works back and forth. And so as I'm making the physical piece, I'll also be writing about making the physical piece and, and, and both will bring up various bits and pieces. And so, um, so, so it's essential, you know, and, and to me, the, the idea that I was suddenly ready to do this work, it actually completely dovetailed with the thing that I was talking about last time about how in the last four or five months, say, I, um, I feel as though a shift has happened where I am much more um, grounded and embedded in this life, this post-John life, as opposed to being in an interim space or being... Um, completely absorbed and connected to the life we had that we no longer had. So I'm here now. In a you're, really anchored. you're anchored. Yeah. yeah. I often hear people say, when is life going to go back to normal? When am I going to feel myself again? And, you know, the tr truth of that, I remember feeling that myself actually post-separation. Um, I'll give this six months, you know, I'll, I'll give it six months to process and then six months came and I still didn't feel quite right. And I remember thinking, God, maybe it's going to need a year till I feel like I'm back in my skin again and my, I'm, I'm familiar to myself again. And then I remember around 14 months going, oh, God, this is what they mean when they say breakup is like bereavement. You know, I'm not ever going to go back to being the person I was when I was married or in relationship like I'm profoundly changed, you know, it's a, a similar, different and similar process um, and not necessarily because of deep grief, but profound change, right? Profound yes. change or anger or a threat to your safety or a threat to your familiarity, all of these layers, you know, can come in.
profound loss can rock our inner world. It's confusing, life-altering and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. Sandy, you did something else profound. You went back to college. I did. Uh, You decided to be a counsellor and you remind me of me like this. You know, if I'm faced with a challenge, I'll do a master's on it. (laughs) It's like I want to become... What else do you do? Yeah literally become a master of the problem and see if by educating my mind I can somehow become more powerful than the challenge in front of me and you know that links up actually with separation and divorce was one of the reasons when I knew that was coming down the line for me was one of the reasons why I did a master's in bereavement studies but it's incredibly empowering to learn I think to learn all these aspects of our psychology, the psychology of loss. It doesn't take away the process, but to understand the process can be hugely helpful. And this is why as grief counselors or grief therapists or people who support those who are grieving to offer psychoeducation as part of the process is essential. You know, not- I very much agree with that. Yeah, I very much agree. And and um, I, I think I mentioned that I, I'm involved with a peer support group. And it just so happened that they called me last night and they want me to help them um, sort of construct the, the, the training program that they want to do for the um, facilitator or train, the volunteers. So they're looking to expand um, the group facilitation. And and they want to figure out how to do that. And, and I, I mentioned, because they hadn't really done it before, but I mentioned that I thought there was a need, at least for the trainers or, or the facilitators to have at least basic psychoeducation about you know, what, the, what the various processes are. So when this person responds in that way and feels lost about it, they might have something to offer. Um, and I'll see where it goes. I'll report back. I'm not sure you know, if, if they're ready for that, but I, because I a lot of people- Signed them up for the Shapes of Grief training program. Absolutely that. And I mean, I, as I said, I found a lot of value in that. I found a lot of value in listening to the podcast initially and hearing people's stories that helped me a lot. But as I got further and further into my own understanding of my own grief, it was finding the people who were talking about the theories that resonated that I really got my feet, my foothold in. And, and that was essential. Um, but back to the thing about going back to college, that was something, actually, it was a something in my toolkit that I had come to as the result of a different kind of loss, which was back in around 2005 or six. My son had uh, had established a relationship with uh, a young woman who he then went on to marry. He's my only child. I wasn't in a relationship. And what I realized was that I was, you know, facing life now 
where I was not the center of anyone's world. His center of gravity shifted to her and as it should, you know, so I wasn't, I wasn't fighting against that, but it was, okay, I can either grieve the loss of this connection to my child, or I can figure out something else to do that has meaning. And um, so what I did was I tried to remember the last time I felt excited about the possibilities of my life. And I realized it was when I, when I, you know, way back when I had begun studies. And so I went back and did my doctorate and I started it in 2007. And I have to say that I loved every minute of it because because I was doing it for myself, you know, and, and I kept saying to myself, when, when, you know, if ever this gets uninteresting or, or tedious, I don't have to finish the degree. I mean, I, I started it at the age of, I think, 53 or 54. So it's not like I was out to forge a career and then I needed a credential. I was doing it for myself. And, and um, so, yeah, and, and it gave me every single thing that I had hoped it would. It got me back in touch with my creative self. It got me back in touch with my, with my um, philosophical self. It gave me a purpose. It, it put me in contact with other people who were excited about what they did. And I actually went in and to just to thank my advisor for all she had given me about at the midpoint. And I think the way I said, thank you, you know, this has given me everything I wanted. She was like, you're not quitting, are you? And like, and I realized afterwards that it sounded like I was saying goodbye and I wasn't, I was just grateful, you know, and it, it had given me so much and continued to. And yeah, so I kind of knew, like when I came to the idea of I need to, I need to study counseling now. Um, and I need to take what I've been through and take what I now know and put it to some sort of use. Um, I knew it was the right decision. And, you know, it's second nature for me to be in academia somehow. So it, you know, it, it, there was no hurdle. And Perpetual just, learners. Yeah, I'm one of those as well. You said the word purpose there. And I think meaning and purpose are two really important words in the vocabulary of the bereaved or anybody who's been through a big loss. And it absolutely doesn't have to be a bereavement. It can be, like I mentioned earlier, a breakup or just anything that redefines your life, a retirement, a redundancy, maybe a hysterectomy, you know, any big event in our lives that redefines us or has the potential to redefine us, any big transition, we can start to search for meaning again or purpose again. Um, yeah. You know, if a child dies and I'm not mothering, what's the meaning of my life or what's the purpose? If I'm not loving him, if I'm not loving her, if I'm not by their side, you know, if we're not making plans together for our future, where's my purpose now? Yeah. And we can feel very adrift without that. Would you speak a little bit about that chasm or did you even let a void come before you filled it with your studies? Um, no, there was definitely a chasm and the chasm lasted for at least a year and a half. And, and the chasm is very unlike me. And I think that was, you know, I, I, as I had said um, the last time, um, 
you know, there was, there was so much about myself that I didn't recognize. And so, so little of the familiar Sandy that I almost didn't know how to move through the day. And, you know, so I, I, I think the word that I used quite frequently in that first year, year and a half was alienating. And I found everything about grief alienating. You know, I was alienated from myself. I was alienated from my sense of place. I was alienated from my culture. I mean, I, I looked around me for something that, that made sense out of the funerary rituals or the grief rituals, the grief theories or the death theories, nothing made sense. And I, you know, I, I'm sort of an amateur anthropologist. I love, you know, various cultures. I was longing to be Maori, longing to be Turajan so that I could have this culture that recognized death and recognized the meaning of grief and understood what that transition was about and, and, and really, um, really mourned the loss of that. And I think that's part of what motivates me too here is I think in Western culture, we've lost so much of that connection. And certainly my, my, um, my PhD thesis was very similar in, in, its, um, in its intent, which was to look at the missing pieces of Western culture and try to find how they are manifested in others and maybe find a way then to bring it um, into, into ours, into my own. Um, and, and so I've definitely been trying to do that with, with um, other ways of looking at grief and death and dying. Um, but the chasm, yeah, was, was it was incredibly confronting. Um, and at the same time, I think to some degree, the wisdom of age, but also the freedom that I have at this age, I'm not there. I don't have the demands of a, of a job I have to go to every day, um, you know, for a, a, most of the, my grieving period, I, I worked as a lecturer online. So, so, you know, and I did that from wherever and I could maintain that gave me a, a little bit of normalcy throughout, you know, those early months. Um, but, but I, but I struggled with, um, with, with how to let myself be in that chasm, not fight it, look into it and that it's my nature as well my nature is to look deeply into something and my own son so grief is a it, it's kind of a constant in our life um, I lost both my parents by the time I was 33 um, he lost his father who was um, we had divorced but it was still a man I love his father he lost his father when he was 10 years old and so we've kind of dealt with these things, um, you know, through a through a, a very a variety of losses, and you know, a beloved grandmother and a beloved uncle, and and all of those things. And every, I mean, in my own experience, I can tell you that every grief is different. So when I read that, it's like, of course they are. I mean, within my own life, they're all different. Um, I don't remember where I was going with that. Sorry, but yeah, there, there's just this. Um, there was a difficulty, I guess, in, in trying to navigate this new kind of grief, because like I said, I was, I was, um, you know, I didn't expect what happened to me when I lost John, because I've lost a lot of people before, and I'd never been so knocked off my feet. Tell um, me about the chasm that you found yourself in after John died. I often refer to it as the pit, the pit of grief. But it's it's 
you know, or existential crisis. It's a, a it's a, it's a flavor of that, you know, I believe. Um, would you describe it a little bit, this chasm? You said you engaged with it for about a year and a half, and it can be a really lonely place and a necessary place somehow. Necessary yeah. to fully process this experience, this human experience. Yes, definitely necessary. Well, from my perspective, it's necessary. Um, the, the chasm was interesting because when I think of the chasm, I think of the grief experience. And in our last conversation, you asked me about the difference between my grief and depression. And so after we talked, you know, um, it got me thinking and, and I realized that Grief for me had that dual process sort of thing in it. It moved from both, you know, the deep and abject sensation of loss and all in the same day, you know, maybe minutes later or an hour later or whatever, I would be, you know, in, in inspired to gather some pieces for future use in an artwork or to look up some imagery to design something out of or to look up some grief theory. Um, or try to find a grief broadcast or podcast, which is probably how I found you. But it was, you know, but it was, it was the oscillation between those things that that um, that differentiated it from depression. Depression was simply being in the loss, um, and it wasn't necessarily even. Um, the, the loss of grief. I don't know that it was focused on, on specifically the grief experience, but just a sensation of, of stasis. I'm stuck here in this low place. And, and so that, so they were, um, they are distinctly different to me, um, but both of them I felt needed to be honored. And, and so I, you know, so I entered into that chasm. I allowed myself to to go into that abject space. I mean, I can't think of a better word for it um, of grief, which is, uh, it, it's confused. It is hurt, um, not by John, but hurt by the cruelty of fate. I used that word before, but cruelty isn't is a significant word to me. And it's not like I felt it was done to me. It's not like I think I've been punished by a God or, or that there's some malevolent force at work. But just the just the sorrow and the and the confusion and the hurt and the and and feeling like um, so little mattered. I, I, and I think you know we spoke about this before, but I, but I thought a lot about death and I thought about what death means and and I was hoping against hope that. Um, I would find some kind of theory or some kind of information that would make me believe in an afterlife. And I've got too much of a materialist, rationalist brain. So there'll be a moment of something that I'll think, yes. And then, and then you know, my, the little editing voice comes in and goes, no, you know, you're being an idiot. You just want it to happen. And, and again, I wish I came from a culture that simply believed that you know, our ancestors or the spirits are with us and they're there. And, and we can attend to them and they can care for us and we can care for them. I wished I believed and, and I want to believe and I'm working at it, but I'm not sure I'll ever get there because of that editing voice. 
Um, so, so it took me into looking at that and, you know, and took me to a place I never thought I would ever be, which was to a place where I felt like if my death happened, I could welcome it. And, and I would not feel like it was um, the, the thing I have to fight. So when it, in a weird place, it really did bring me to the bottom of that existential fear and, and look at it squarely in the eye for a while. Um, and then that led me to some really interesting research. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Stephen Jenkinson in, in Canada, who wrote Die Wise, and, and, I, and I love what he does. I love how he talks about death and how we can um, look squarely at it and work with it and not against it and, and, and quit fighting that idea of, of we are going to die because we are and, and to develop some grace around it. Um, when it, I, have you come across the work of Francis Weller? Yes, yeah. Uh, I'd say you'd love him. I've done a few retreats with him online and it's exactly what you're talking about, like that searching for meaning, um, you know, and he has got a lot of his inspiration from indigenous cultures around the world. Um, he's a very soulful man and he talks about the gates of grief and grief as a companion to us all through our lives exactly as you're describing there you know with the death of your son's father and um, those kindly people that were there in your lives you know some of us are accompanied from a very early age through life by by death and by grief and others have the padding of western culture that protects us you know sanitizes birth and death and we don't have to face it, or if it does touch us, it's in a, another room, you know, somehow it's in another room and packaged away neatly where we don't even see the body. Um, yeah. But this sense of facing, people think it's morbid and it, it couldn't be further from the truth. I think when we can look squarely at our mortality and, and the shortness of our lives, um, there's a richness that comes into how we live the time we do have. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And, and I also think that there's, with, with grief, there comes a deepening and a wisdom. And, and I can remember my son in his you know, early to middle teenage years um, talking to me about, so there, was, there were some times when he was in the company of adults where he knew that he was deeper in some ways and knew something that they didn't know, you know, so he could recognize that piece and, and, um, you know, he's developed from that, from that experience. I mean, it is also his nature, but into this very deeply compassionate man who, you know, who has a lot of grace and a lot of room for people and their, and whatever their brokennesses are. And, and, and I think that that happens. I mean, immediately, yeah, I, I felt this strange kind of compassion for the people who struggled to comfort me, you know, and I recognized that they, what, what they didn't know and how much they wanted to help me, but didn't know the words, didn't know what was going to help or harm, were hesitant for whatever reason. Um, and I felt this, it was like this welling of love for these poor people who were struggling, you know, and, and I'm, I'm the one with the loss, but still it was like this outwardly, an outward thing. And, and um, 
And I'm, you know, the, the odd sensation, I was talking about this last night, actually. It's, I haven't found the right words to describe where I am in my grief right now, but I've come to a place where I'm grateful for so many of the things that it's given me, not the least of which is that I'm talking to you. I know you, I've heard of you, do you know? And, 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 and that I now know this thing that's important for people to know, that I can help other people with, you know, whether or not it's just my friends or family or whether it's a wider audience, um, I can help because I know of this thing. And, you know, I would give anything to have John back. So it's not that. It's not that I weigh one against the other. But I have been given gifts in this. And not the least of it is a reforged self who who is quieter at her center, um, which is something I never thought would happen. I mean, I was always someone who, it, it wasn't something that bothered me, but I was always someone who was a seeker and a striver. And, you know, my, my friends were almost exhausted watching me. I, you know, they'd think, well, now she's gonna settle down and I'd fling myself to the other side of the planet and do something else. It was just my way. And they still sort of look at my educational pursuits that way, but I know that that's a bit quieter of an endeavor. But, but, um, but I don't feel that sort of turning anymore. It's it's almost like I kind of know where I am located in a way that I think I've never known before. And 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 this maybe it's this reckoning with death that lets me know exactly where my feet are planted. Do you know, and I think that's the best way I can describe it because I've talked all along in grief about how, you know, it, it pulled the rug out from under me. It was a, it, you know, it, it knocked me off my feet. It made me feel like I was floating. It was always about how I felt in relationship to, you know, my physical life, where I would, if I was grounded in my physical life. And, and um, yeah, it, it, that's like a really important piece for me. It's really interesting you use the word relocated. I know where I'm located, or you said relocated. And one of the, well, it's not one's tasks of grief, but it's it's one of the processes we seem to need to do is to relocate our, our loved ones. You know, um, where is their essence? You know, where is the being that is them, that we love, that we see when we look in their eyes? If it's no longer in their body, where is that, you know? Um, and I, I know of people who go to the window and look out or, you know, if a robin comes, they're like desperately going, is that you? Or a feather or a butterfly, I, I need to relocate them. It's just too much to go. They just don't exist anymore. They're just, poof, gone, you know? It, it's, it's too much to absorb that reality. And we don't know where we go, you know. I did say to somebody yesterday, they were okay before they were born. Like you were okay before you were born. And I was okay before I was born. And somehow they're okay now. And I'll be okay when I die and so will you. And we're not sure what that okayness is, but is it something to do with love or beautiful energy or creation? None of us really know. But certainly we do need to try and relocate them. But it's interesting that you say you relocated yourself. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of the, we have to do that too. Like, you know, it, it knocks us off of our course a lot of the time and, you know, not always, not every grief did that. I mean, I, like I said, I lost both parents and that didn't, it, that did not disrupt my sense of self like losing John did. Um, it did change some of my sense of self. I, I explained this recently to someone as being for the first time I realized I was I was seeing my life only through the lens of my own eyes. It wasn't being filtered through how my dad would think or how my mom would think about whatever it was I was doing. So, so it shifted it somehow that way, but it didn't shift my plan for my life. It didn't shift how I saw myself. And you know, John and I had become enmeshed and, and we had wonderful plans for, you know, for the future. And, and it was interesting during the grief process, one of the things that kind of propelled me forward was marking those places where we would have been. So for instance, I, I mentioned that we were supposed to come to Australia and we had specific plans. And during that whole period of time, during the, you know, the, the actual month of October when we would have been there, you know, I was constantly writing about, we would have been here now, we would have been doing this now, I would have been bringing him there, I would have been showing him this. One of the things he was very excited about was putting his feet in the Indian Ocean. And so once we, once I got here, one of the things that I brought with me was um, his daughters had given me some of John's ashes. And, and I, I've almost, I guess the way to describe it is I've left sprinklings of his ashes at places that I felt were significant for him. So, so almost as offerings to some of the places where we hiked when in North Carolina before I came. And then when I came here, the first thing I did was go to the Indian Ocean, put his, you know, do an offering, put his, his ashes there and say, okay, you know, I don't know if this is your feet, but you're in the Indian Ocean. And, and, um, and I plan to do that. I mean, I have, I, you know, I still have some ashes and, and because of COVID, I haven't done any sort of adventuring, but, but wherever I go, John will come with me. I mean, I wear him and, and he, he's in this little, his ashes are in this little um, locket. And I have to tell, I want to tell a story, this story because it's significant, um, you know, maybe for people who are trying to understand someone else's grief. When my mother died, my father was bereft and they had... Uh, one of those kind of love of love of my life relationships. That was how I knew they existed in the world before I was with John, because I'd seen them. And I just assumed that it wasn't, you know, in the cards for me, but my parents had that. And my mother died quite young. She was 57 of um, cancer. And my father was just devastated by her loss. Um, and he kind of wandered. He would wander between my sister and I. So he'd come to visit me or he'd go down to visit her. And, and um, he arrived one time and I was helping him get his suitcase out of the car. And the cremation urn with my mother's ashes was in the trunk next to a suitcase. And I, and I worried about it. I thought, oh, you know, he can't let her go. He can't let her go. Honestly, as soon as John died and he was cremated, I understood exactly well how my father felt, you know, and my father didn't wear my mother. I'm wearing John, you know, so like, like if he was broken, I'm even more broken, but it was like, okay, now I get this, you know, it's like, and it is what you were talking about before, where are they? And, 
you know, you can have any kind of sense about where they might be spiritually and whether or not you can talk to them or whatever, but you will never look in their eyes again. You will never have the experience of what it feels like to be in the same room with them. And, and in a way, the ashes are the closest you can get to that. Or going to the gravesite is the closest you can get to that. So, so I understand that now in a way that I didn't understand when I, as a witness, you know. What you're describing there as well, like John wanting to put his feet in the Indian Ocean, um, the future, the loss of the future. And it's, you know, sometimes when you talk, Sandy, I think of parents who lose babies really early on or stillborn babies, um, their whole future, the whole future ahead of them that was planned. Or, you know, the minute we get that blue line on the pregnancy test and we we imagine so much of the life that's going to come with this human we've brought into the world, or in your case, this human you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Yeah. And I'm wondering about the, you know, you have these plans and I, I can feel the excitement of your love. You know, I'm not going to find this love in my lifetime. And then, oh my God, here it is. Yeah. And the gratitude you had and how much you milked it, you know, it's wonderful. And these plans you had together for the time that you would have, and then and then that's, that doesn't happen, that doesn't materialize. But there's something about the importance of, okay, I've lost John, and I'm still going to go to the Indian Ocean, and I'm still going to go here. And I'm, you know, of not losing all the dreams, but doing it yourself somehow. It, it's like that Pixar movie, Up, you know, the older man and his wife dies and they there are these adventures and they dream to visit, is it the Grand Canyon? And he goes off in his house anyway. It's a pilgrimage. It's a veritable yeah. pilgrimage of, you know, it's almost like you talk about this enmeshment you had with John. Is it the opposite? Is it the reversing of that process? Not that you're letting him go, but that you're finding yourself again or building yourself as an individual again, somehow. I don't know. I'm putting words on it now. Let me hear it from you. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I feel more like I'm bringing him with me. And, and so, so I am, I feel like I'm regathering and rebuilding strength and clarity. I mean, I'm, I'm a completely and utterly independent cuss. So the whole idea that I got so enmeshed with John was a shock to everyone and including myself, but also how seamless it was because he was the right man and, and it was the right relationship. And, and, and it was so easy, um, but, and, and I reveled in the fact that even though I had done a single solo life alone well for a long time, um, I was really reveling in the fact that I now had an adventuring partner and, and um, we actually, we you know, were mentioning Portugal before. One of the few things we managed to do in the time we were together was a trip to Portugal where, no, where neither of us had been and absolutely fell in love with it and, um, and always wanted and definitely planned to go back. It's like, we need to do more of this. And, and at a, for a longer period of time, he was still working, so he couldn't take a lot of time off, but adored it. And, um, and now there's a part of me that would, that really wants to go back because I like, I loved Portugal and I would love to see more and I'd love to revisit, but it's also, I wonder if I will, just because 
it also will be very sad to be there without him, you know? So I'm, yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure about that one, but there are other things that, you know, that I intend that, that I will also bring him along in. And I think part of the decision to study this and to focus on grief counseling and grief theory is a way to be me and bring John into the future. You know, like if I was studying nanoscience, it wouldn't have anything to do with him or us. Um, this does, you know, and you know, the last time I studied seriously, it was about belonging, but part of it was a belonging and, and, and how you find connection to place. Um, um, but it was, and it was for me, but it was more for my son. So there's always somebody connected to it for me, you know, so John's connected to this, the work I'm doing now, but so is my son and my daughter-in-law. You know, I, like I said, I want to be able to give them at least a partial toolkit. You know, how can you do this better than I had to do it? I think is what I'm thinking. And, and that was a motivator for the, for the PhD as well, which was how can I help my son learn how to connect to place better than the struggles that I had about that. And, and um, you know, so it's, it's always kind of motivated by. I, I love that know. word, that word belonging, Sandy, that you use. And, you know, uh, Maya Angelou has some lovely uh, words around belonging. What is it? She says, you belong nowhere, you belong everywhere, you belong to yourself. Or, or, or some version of that anyway. Um, but I think, you know, when, when we get enmeshed with somebody in relationship like that, we belong to them, we want to belong to them, and they belong to us. And it's, it's that it's such a strong desire, I think, particularly when we have decided that's not for us, it's not going to happen. And then when it happens, the the chemistry of it is just so profound and and intoxicating and we we dive into it head first and then when we suddenly don't belong to that person anymore again um could you speak a little bit about what that was like for you for those years you belonged to john was there a sense of who do i belong to now or where do i belong i mean i know you you said in the last conversation you knew that your people were somewhere else and you packed your bags and you you got yourself to your people. How yeah. do we know where we belong? Or how can we even better create a space of belonging for ourselves in a world that we feel is so alienating and rejecting of our experience? I think I was lucky in a way because I had spent so many years researching what belonging meant to me. So I knew, I knew what it related to. And I, I knew that it involved, you know, a group of people who saw me as I was, accepted me as I am, like me anyway, you know, despite who I am or because of who I am, whatever. And, and, um, and I've gathered those people carefully and, and they've gathered me carefully too. And so, so I knew who they were. Um, in terms of place, I mean, I always used to refer to myself as born on foreign soil because I was born in Boston, but having done DNA tests, none of my ancestry came from North America. It's all Northern Europe. So it's Norway, England, Ireland, 
And um, so, so I'm a foreign entity in the place of my birth. And then, I mean, this may, it, it didn't occur to me. I don't know exactly why it didn't occur to me how absurd this was, but in order to sort of search for my place of belonging, I flung myself with my young son um, from the US to Indonesia and then to Australia, the far side of the planet. It's like, if you're looking for where you belong, why are you going on the other side? But it's interesting because I did actually find some clues to what belonging means through some um, Aboriginal elders that I met here and their understanding of place and that sort of thing. So I think when I came to grief, I already had a sense of how I enact belonging. And so I could, I, I could do that for myself. And the only thing that made that difficulty uh, difficult was the was the um, the sort of fog of of grief, which you know, in the immediate aftermath, the fact that I could string two thoughts together was kind of a minor miracle. And and you know, I think that's why my friend was so supportive and so impressed that I'd managed to gather up my belongings and have them shipped overseas and move myself back and. You know, and and I think I was on autopilot a lot for that. I I I don't know that I was um, doing anything particularly well. I do know that I packed everything I could find that had anything to do with our life together. And I'm talking, I'm even including like receipts from restaurant dinners and you know anything that was a piece of evidence of a day spent together. And you know, and, and anything that we bought together and household furnishings that had meaning for us and stuff. And so I ended up spending quite a lot of money shipping back a bunch of stuff that once I got here, um, a lot of it I gave away in terms of furniture. I live in a small apartment, there's no place to put it. And, and you know, but it had to come with me. I couldn't leave it. And, and so a lot of it was not rational, but it was decisions being made in this sort of fog of, of grief and confusion, um, but but it but a, a trust also in my in my intuition. I have had great instincts for myself for many years, and I've I've learned to follow them. And often, you know, against the ideas that others have for me. So I quite even even people who love me and are good friends and close, you know, they. They sort of think, well, where did that decision come from? Because they don't see the process I go through in making up my mind to either go back to school or move back to the States or involve myself in a new relationship. I mean, whatever it was, it was, you know, it was, um, it's something that they have to sometimes catch up with. But yeah, but I have good instincts for myself and I've learned to trust that, I think, over time. And, and I think when you're in grief, that's all you've got sometimes is your instinct. You know, this is what I need to do right now. And so much of what, what's out there in terms of theory or, or popular culture information kind of stuff goes against the instinctive grain. So, so you know, your instinct might be to hunker down for, you know, a month, but, you know, your, your community and your culture and, and whatever is saying, you need to get back on your feet. You need to get out there. You need to be among people. And sometimes the most alienating thing you can do is to be among people, you know, and, and you need to have those times to be quiet and inner and, mm. and to right. let, what'd you say? Get it. 
you know, who just let you be and can sit there with a hand in your back without trying to change anything. Because mm -hmm. I do think connection is really important in grief. Um, yeah. It's so lonely, but just the right connection. I think I've said this before, but the one thing I love from that book, Option B, um, Cheryl Sandberg, when her husband died suddenly, and she mentions, I think in the book, or maybe it was in an interview, that for a month, her mother came and slept with her. And I just think that is the most perfect grief support, you know, that she just climbed into the bed, put her arms around her daughter and held her. Yeah. Like beautiful, so beautiful and, and intuitive, you know. Um, but I, I don't think many of us are that lucky to have someone who intuitively knows how to just literally climb in beside us and hold us. But we do, we become yeah. very young, often very vulnerable, and sometimes even really quite animalistic, you know, like a, 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 a rabbit caught in the headlights or, you know, we lose our skin. And um, one of my last guests, Linda, talks about, she said it was like I had no skin and my nervous system was on the outside. Um, and it's in, so interesting because everybody describes this physicality of grief in in a different way you know for some it's a tsunami for some it's a fragmentation i love that idea of your nervous system being outside your body and you're so yeah. sensitive and so vulnerable um but either way whatever it is it, it requires such a a tenderness and a a gentle touch you know you spoke in our last conversation about popular culture and you know, this is certainly something that I'm trying to change with shapes of grief is, you know, coming like, here's what the evidence says, and here's what the research says. And here's what I mean, at this stage, I've seen hundreds of people in my clinical practice. And, you know, you begin to see the patterns, obviously, and, you know, what's what's normal and common and in, in this human experience. What are the things that we hear about in popular culture? that you feel are just the wrong messages. Um, and and I, I might start with one that I see a lot of actually, um, and it's somebody who's quite well known, I won't say who it is, but the anger of, the anger towards all the people who don't get it. Um, and I would be completely guilty of this as well, both from my own personal experience of feeling so abandoned after separation, um, but also, I'm sure in earlier podcasts, you'll hear me say this, oh, people just don't get it and it's terrible and other people need to cop on. Whereas I'm much more now, um, more towards the idea of how can we help ourselves? Yes, connection is vital, but how can we find this agency um, and this power inside to hold ourselves with the tenderness that we want everyone else to? And if that happens, even better. But if it doesn't, that we're not just lost in this abyss of bitterness that everybody's let us down. Does that make sense? So it does know, make a lot of sense. Yeah. And it, I mean, it is something that you, you know, I think probably most people who are grieving have to struggle with at one point or another. Somebody will let them down and they'll do it in a major way. <laughs> you know, like it's not even like a subtle thing sometimes. Yeah. But um, and I think for me, when when things occur, and they continue to occur, actually, um, but when they occur, 
I'm reminded that until this happened to me this time, until, until the loss of John happened, I was so unaware of so much that I now know about the grief experience that, that, um, that I need to have compassion for what people don't already know. They haven't had the experience yet, so, so they won't know it. And, and, um, and if I can allow myself the idea that I can grow through this experience to a, a, a more awareness and a deeper compassion for people, then so can others, you know? And I know that some of my friends who haven't um, gone through you know, such a, a, a deep grief um, are learning from watching me and, and they are taking note of, of, you know, my experience. And, and so I think that there is a sort of a knock-on effect in your close circle. Um, but, but I think the, the anger um, doesn't, it, it, it fails to recognize that, I mean, you know, that, that we all sort of learn from experience. And I'm wondering, like, the, I don't know the, the person you're talking about, but I'm wondering whether or not they can remember the time when they, they were not aware of what grief brought, you know, yeah. what kind of devastation it could rot, you know, because it, and then actually it's, it's really similar to how I parented was which one I was trying to sort of figure out what to do next. I tried to remember what it was like to be 10 or five or whatever. And it's like, okay, you know, no, now I, maybe I can go outward from here. So it is that sort of thing of trying to empathize with sometimes an experience you don't you haven't already had you know it's like I'm, I'm a mother of a boy so you know there were times in his particularly his teen years where I felt more like an anthropologist than a mother but still it was you know it, it was that curiosity I guess about what oh I wanted to to say there like to lose someone to death is so profound and you know as grievers we need everyone around us you know um and it's too easy to cut or it's too we have to limit the damage you know um i i am not a marriage counselor at all but i would say i've saved lots of marriages by saying to people please just put the relationship on ice you know maybe somebody's mother dies their husband just doesn't get it suddenly everything is wrong in the relationship and you know, it's true, grief does change us profoundly and maybe we will walk away from relationships that previously served us and don't anymore. But be careful as well. Be careful as well, because when we're in the thick of the moment, we can cleave people out of our lives. And, you know, have I always been totally present to my friends are grieving? No. Have I yeah. always rocked up and being that amazing friend no, um, you know, we just have to be careful of the stories we tell ourselves, you know, I, I, had, yes. I, I had a moment last Saturday, as you know, I have COVID at the moment, I'm at the tail end of it now, and three of my four kids, all we all tested positive one after the other, and, you know, I'm a, a separated mother, so I'm home alone, and a couple of friends texted on Saturday, well, let me know if you need anything, you know, this <laughs> fabulous, useless phrase. <laughs> and I could find myself for a few moments going, well, of course I need something. You know, I'm home alone. I can't get out to the shops. All my kids are sick. I can't send them to the shops and we've no food. And 
I could feel like, thankfully not for too long, but this sort of stories brewing inside me of how stupid people are. And of course I need, you know, someone to go and buy us our dinner. And, and then just this moment of just stop, you know, just stop, just text back and go, yeah, would you mind doing a shop? That would be super. You know, it's funny though. I mean, that that's that's absolutely spot on. But I've had the experience too of of having to remind myself not to attach at any level to what I think might be an outcome because there was a period of time, um, maybe about six months in, where I started to notice that some friends were just not calling they weren't texting they weren't coming around they they drifted away and I know that there are people who care about me they care about me still so I actually I thought about it for a while and I thought I think they're probably struggling they want to contact they, they just don't know how it's it's you know gone on the more time that goes on the less they feel like they can so I carefully crafted an email and said, I understand that it's difficult to help somebody who's grieving and that I've been in a pretty bad way. And, and that I was, and, and I thought maybe it would be helpful if I just told you what I need. And, and so I said, it really helps me, you know, when you come around and I get to talk about John, because talking about him brings him close to me. And it's really, it's really essential to my well-being right now. And and, you know, and, and your friendship and your presence is, you know, really, really great for me. And I really appreciate it when you come. And I sent it to probably about maybe four or five people, I think. And I think all of them responded going, oh, thank you so much. I didn't know what to say. That really helps. And then nobody contacted me. So it was that whole thing about you know, you can do your best in trying to help people help you, but you also can't attach to the fact they will. And they're still my friends and I still love them and I still understand. Do you know, like they, yeah. they, they, they wanted the skills, but they still couldn't quite do it. And, you know, like now, because of the way I think about things, you know, I, I probably too quickly do this, but it's, I, I immediately go, okay, well, they're not ready to sort of do the existential deep dive yet you know and there's something in this death and grief that's just too big and um so you know so, so i i try to understand it and i try not to attach to it just because the only loss will be mine you know i, I will lose these people that i care about and and i've had enough loss thanks you know this is this is really deep growth you know um I think at a certain age as well, everybody is dealing with something. You know, I know in my life with four kids, there's always one of them that needs a significant amount of attention for one reason or another, or I have a work due on, or this, you know, there's always something you're juggling in life or an older parent or a friend who's just got a diagnosis. It becomes quite relentless <laughs> at a certain age and, you know, I think we all would love to have the time to do what we're saying, to come and sit and be with each other. But this is the sadness of our Western culture. You know, we don't sit around fires with cups of tea often mm -hmm. enough at all. And, and it's the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And these precious moments of sitting around and hearing each other's stories about love, about grief, about life about dying about living where are they where is the time for that and 
uh, this is why I love yeah. doing podcasts, sitting with random strangers <laughs> in Australia <laughs> and talking about really important stuff that I don't talk yeah. about with my friends. Yeah. You know? Yes. And I mean, I love the fact that um, because I've always loved these kinds of conversations, the deeper, the better. Um, I don't know that I ever went quite so far into death that I, that I do now these days, but, but it was like grief th through all of, of what it, any other conversations out the window for me. It's like, I really, if you're not going to go really deep with me, I just don't want to go there. And so I think I might be a little bit difficult for, you know, some people to be around just because I'm, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to chit chat. I want to talk like this about something that matters. And, and um, yeah, I mean, it's always been my preference. And now I have sort of like the widow badge. So I can say, you know, like, I don't have to talk about that anymore. So, yeah. It's like an initiation and you alluded to it earlier, Andy, you know, like yourself and your son had to face that when his dad died, I imagine you alluded to it, alluded to it when you spoke about him in a room as a teenager in a room full of adults and he was like more knowing than a lot of the people around him and I recognize that as well like you just it's and I've said this before and sorry I suppose after 88 episodes I do repeat myself a lot but it's like there's just a knowing in someone's eyes that they're awake in the world that something has happened in their lives that has kicked their nervous system into presence. And, you know, psychologists might call it hypervigilance and there's an element of that, but it's like a presence. Um, and I, I've told the story of going into my son's class one day, I think they were around six or seven. And he had told me that there was a new kid in the class and I'd brought in some newly hatched chicks we had at home or maybe ducklings. And I remember this, this kid was there and I looked at him and let's call him Tom. And he looked at me and my first thought was, oh my gosh, what's happened? He's so present. <laughs> this child is looking at me and I can see him. He's fully present. And, and, you know, I said, hi, I'm Tyke's mom, I'm Liz. And he was like, I'm Tom. And I said, it's nice to meet you. And he said, it's nice to meet you. And there was that little exchange, no information shared. But a few weeks later, my son came home and he said, Tom's dad died when he was two. And ah, there you go. There yeah. you go. <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that's it. And we recognize it in people in the depth of their look, <laughs> their presence, the way they talk, the way they hear, you know. Um, and it is, it is this initiation that brings and I think we we can be in it and lose it sometimes a bit in life as well it can be intense to always be in that space um yeah I agree with that but I also think like one of the uh, one of the things that I have noticed and I'm very grateful for is that my own grief experience and the fact that I want to talk about it you know in the world seems to be permission granting to people who've held their grief in for years. And, and I think the thing that's surprised me the most in the last few years, or one of the things that surprised me the most is how many people are grieving a really significant loss. 
And you would not know it to see how they're moving through the world. But if you mention something, all of a sudden it's there. And that they too are incredibly grateful for the conversation, you know? So, I mean, I, I'm like Dr. Death coming into a party, but, or, or I don't know, like the, I might as well wear like a shroud, but, but I usually end up talking to someone in depth about something that's, you know, like, like, like deep and, and a significant shift and usually some sort of a loss. Um, and, and it's not like it's a depressed conversation. It's, it's a grateful conversation on both of our parts. Um, so I guess that's part of like what I feel like I'm doing now. And, you know, whether or not I'll end up counseling or whether or not I'll end up um, exhibiting and having, you know, I, I mean, I think I has explained, I, I, you know, I want to be, I want to exhibit. I've never really cared about exhibiting my work before, but this one has to be exhibited because it's all about the work being the invitation to the conversation. You know, this is what my grief map looks like. This is what my grief story looks like. You know, what in it do you, can you connect to? And what do you want to ask me about? And what do you want to tell me? And you know, I, I, th I thought about exhibiting it and I, th and I think that um, if this is unusual, but the entire time it's the, the works are being shown, I wanna be there. I need to be there so that people can talk to me. I, on this, on, you know, being there for grief and having these conversations and how life is different now, I'm curious to see, will it also continue to evolve for you? As someone who is, you strike me as someone who's always changing and evolving as with your life, you know, which is lovely. I think that's how it should be for, for most of us. Um, but it's interesting that what my last guest, Linda, whose son died by suicide when he was 15, and I think it's eight years later now, she talks about not so much how other people dropped away and stopped talking about it, but her need to actually stop talking about grief or needing the support of others her need to go that's done now you know and and this is really interesting because so many people talk about grief that we move forward with it we, we bring it with us we never get over it we don't move on from it and what I'm beginning to hear from people is there's a point where people say I don't want that to be driving my life anymore I actually want to lean into different parts of me um, that aren't the griever, you know? So I'm, I'm curious to see how that will evolve for you as well as someone who does evolve, that might you embrace this and might it serve you for five years, for eight years, for 10 years, and then might you too also decide that's, that's enough for me. Um, one previous guest I had on the podcast, Megan Scully, who's a younger woman who lost her son to a car accident, sorry, her brother to a car accident when she was a young teenager. I think she was 15 and he was 18. And her way of dealing with it, like for so many people, was to immerse herself in road safety. You know, so she got involved with road safety campaigns and she's a journalist now. So she became this voice of road safety campaigns but then in her early 20s, she went, I don't want, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to be, I did it for a period of time. It was like part of her process. I don't want to be all wrapped up with road safety and other people's grief. And somehow she untethered herself from that. 
Um, mm. And I, I just think like there's all of these possibilities, you know, definitely engage and let go. We, you know, there, there's so many different ways of processing it. Yeah, and I'm curious too to see where it goes. Though I, I also have my suspicions that grief is is different as we age, and you don't. There's not a lot of study being done over elderly bereaved partners. And I realize I'm not elderly, but I'm getting close. And um, but you know, it's a it's a different. You know, even from the outside, people look at me differently than they do, for instance a young woman whose partner died like I don't get the kind of pressure about you know you'll you'll love again and you know you'll have children with someone I mean no one's telling me I'll have children with someone they know that that's not possible but but they're not even really um thinking that I you know that I, that I should be partnered again you know like I'm old enough that I can sort of live out my life as a widow because there you know there's plenty of widows in their late 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. And um, so it's different. It's, there's a different kind of pressure from the outside about shifting into or away from something. And, and also, I think if you were to you know, lose a partner and still had children to raise, there would really be a, 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 you know, a, a, a um, pressure that you would put on yourself at the very least of being able to feel like you were more engaged in a in a life that was moving forward and forward thinking and and um so I think there's kind of a different way that we look at things and you know I, I mean I think one of the things as a as an older person who's bereaved that frustrates me is the assumption that it isn't the same experience or it isn't it isn't as hard to reconstruct yourself um you know as a 65 year old widow as it is as a 35 year old widow, you know, and, and, and I think the experiences are probably more similar than they are dissimilar, but, but because of the way we look at age and relationships at various times in our life, we, you know, we don't, I mean, for all intents and purposes, John and I were 17 and 24, because that's where we kind of met and that's where we picked up again. And, you know, it had, it had that sort of same sort of, um, juicy joy with with a little bit of acquired wisdom thrown in you know so so it was very much at that almost a young love kind of sensation and um you're raising an important point about grief in older people and there are assumptions that when we are older we're able to handle grief um and maybe we are in some cases but it is just as profound it is just as confusing we go through similar processes when we're 80 and someone we love dies uh, as we would if we were 40 and someone we love dies. Um, it's really, really vulnerable. And actually there's a, a woman, Dr. Katrin Gerber in Australia. Mm, yeah. I, I, I saw that podcast or the, um, the education program. I liked her, I liked her interview, yeah. Yeah, it's on the Shapes of Grief training program and she does a presentation yeah. about grief and older people. and. It is so moving and it's like I really call on people to watch it. It's on shapesofgrief.com. Sign up for the training program and it's in one of the modules, Grief and Older People. Very, very moving. And it's through poetry, you know, that they're describing the extent of their loss, some of lost partners um, and others' children. So yeah, a really important topic. Thank you so much for meeting me again. Um, I knew that we would fill this hour, no bother, I think we've gone an hour and 15 minutes. 
Um, mm. It's an utter joy to chat with you and hear your wisdom and talk about these really, really important topics. Um, and I hope, I'm sure the listeners will get so much out of these two hours as well. Thank you for this opportunity. It's a gift. It really, it truly is a gift. And I'm very grateful for, for what you do, but also for including me in it. So I, I really appreciate having had this opportunity. Well, for me, it's just the normal, ordinary voices are the most important on this podcast, you know. Um, this grief is not the territory of celebrities. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it is a common human experience. And my deepest intention with this was to share the stories of common human people um, who are all extraordinary in their own right. Um, but we, you talk from your heart and your soul and that really comes across. Um, I have such an image of John now, you know, with his, <laughs> with his feet in the Indian Ocean, even though he never technically put his feet in the Indian Ocean. Somehow by sharing that story, John has his feet in the Indian Ocean now. Um, and yeah, I wish you the very best with your studies and everything that you're, you're doing. And I'd love to hear from you in a couple of yeah. years and see where are you at now and what are you doing with it all? I'd um, love that. It's really nice to hear you talk as well. I was thinking the other day, how is it that Sandy's so familiar to me and so much of what you were saying is like, it's like I'm listening to myself. And, and <laughs> then I realized you bought the training program and listened to lots of podcasts and it's like, you to me are the embodiment of my work getting out there not my work i'm i'm a curator of lots of people's work you know um but to hear it getting out there is just fabulous like when we talk about purpose and meaning it's like yay <laughs> that that's it it's it's getting out there people are using it and then passing it on again yeah it's very important work and i'm grateful for what you did and because i it it's helped me and number of times it helped me originally when I found you know the podcast and heard people's stories and it helped me again when I found the education program so and this helps me so so you continue you're the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> uh, I'm the facilitator thank you for listening to this episode of shapes of grief this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice and if your grief is making you unwell please do see your healthcare provider. Once again, please consider supporting the podcast by donating on shapesofgrief.com or becoming a patron on patreon.com. I rely on your support to keep going. The music is performed by Baca Beyond, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from Miles Gleeson, take really good care. <laughs>